Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. Hope this finds you well. It would appear, at least here in Kentucky, it seems as though Aslan is on the move and the long winter spell has been broken and spring is in the air. Um, I'm coming to you with a podcast that was supposed to be recorded around Valentine's Day, but because of uh, some delays, most notably COVID hitting my friend who um, quote-unquote produces the podcast. By the way, um, a long overdue shout-out to a man named Paul Adams. Paul is the director of communications here at our church, and he really is the one who makes this podcast happen. Um, All I do is show up and talk into a microphone. All the editing and publishing and uh, social media stuff, all of that is Paul. So um, thank you, Paul. Anyway, uh, Paul went and got the Rona, and out of everything we could take off his plate at the church, this was by far the easiest. So it got delayed, and I was actually going to change topics because this was supposed to be in connection with Valentine's Day. But my wife convinced me that this is a really important discussion that I should record, and so I'm going to go with it. And it's not about those who celebrate Valentine's Day, but instead those who don't, those who maybe dread Valentine's Day because it's a reminder of what you long to have but God has not provided. I would like to record my thoughts on the single life. I think it's, uh, I think it's very appropriate for a podcast that does public theology to speak to one of the most significant public developments we are witnessing, and that is the ever-growing demographic of the unmarried population. It's increasing every year, and if the trend continues, it won't be long until half the population over 18 will be single. Now, I know that also reflects the devaluation of marriage in our culture along with the rise of cohabitation, but even that only exacerbates the dilemma for those who view marriage with reverence and don't want to cohabit. They want to covenant. They want to covenant. So all I'm saying, I suppose, is that the single life is becoming an ever-growing reality and pressing issue. And I think it's important for us to give kind of the Christian worldview on that reality, which for many is a uh, source of lament. Now, if you are not single, I really encourage you to still listen. Because speaking candidly, we need to grow in our empathy and understanding of the single life. We married folks need to know how to befriend, support, and love our unmarried friends among us. But I would also like to ask my single friends to listen as well. And the reason why I say that is because in my experience walking alongside uh, many friends through their singleness, they are tempted to respond to it in one of two ways, shame or strength. And both of these make a podcast like this a difficult listen. So for some, your singleness is a deep source of shame, and the topic is an uncomfortable one for you, a painful one for you. It touches on your deepest insecurities and speaks to your greatest fears. You want so badly to be listening to podcasts that will help you in your marriage, in your parenting. You don't want a podcast on singleness. And so out of shame and maybe pain, you may not want to listen to this. Others, however, respond to their singleness not with shame, but with strength. 
you don't like this discussion because it implies that you need this discussion. And the thought of another married dude talking about your unmarried experience is patronizing, perhaps even infuriating. A podcast on singleness, that's what needy singles uh, that's what they listen to. I, I, I don't even know if I want to get married. I got my career, my social life, my independence, my personal space, and listening to this feels like a concession of sorts. And so out of fear of a weakness and vulnerability, you too may not want to listen. I would like to ask both of you to give me a chance here. The Christian church has failed you deeply in this for, for reasons I'll get into. Uh, we have proven woefully inept at loving and welcoming this ever-growing demographic in our cultures. And even more so, we have failed to teach and disciple and guide and equip you on what it means to follow Jesus in your unmarried life. So I thought I would record something that I'm hoping, humbly hoping, (laughs) it will be a robust, thoughtful, intentional, theologically rich, yet practically compelling vision of the unmarried life. That's my hope, at least. And so to do so, I want to look at the single life of Jesus and the single life of the Apostle Paul. We take that for granted, by the way. Our Savior lived the unmarried life, and the Apostle who brought our Savior to the world lived the unmarried life. That in itself infuses your experience with dignity and even glory. Um, But here's what I want to do. I want to use Jesus and Paul to form our worldview here. I want to use Jesus and Paul to talk about the myths and the gifts of singleness. So in part one, we will allow Jesus to dispel the myths that we believe about singleness. In part two, we will allow Paul to promote the gifts that we fail to see when it comes to singleness. So in this episode, let's start with Jesus and the myths of singleness. In my experience of loving my friends through the challenges of singleness, the lies they believe about their singleness can be debilitating. And I want to speak to the three that I think are the most predominant. Here they are, and then we'll go through each of them. Three myths, three lies about singleness. You need a spouse to be complete, you need sex to be fulfilled, and you need a family to be loved. Jesus will dispel each of those myths. Um, Let me give you a verse to ground us in this discussion. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. One of the greatest promises of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus is that henceforth he is the God who can relate, meaning truly relate. We do not have a God, the verse says, who is unable to sympathize. We have a God who knows what it's like because he himself has experienced what it's like. And that includes his celibacy. The celibate life of Jesus is not appreciated or contemplated enough. Because Jesus chose the unmarried life, we are able to say so much about that experience, particularly about what it is not. The humanity of Jesus dispels the lies that you believe about your singleness. And the first is this, that you need a spouse to be complete. So the camera zooms in on Tom Cruise and with tears in his eyes, staring down Renee Zellweger with her aw shucks look on her face, he says, you complete me. 
and you believe him in that moment, and you want that moment. And worse, evangelicalism has reinforced that moment. For the most part, there is not much written on singleness, but much of what is written includes a theological error that throws the entire thing off. And the error is that the married life is the complete life. Take, for instance, the Christian book on singleness that every female, every sister in Christ from my generation consumed, Lady in Waiting. If you are younger, you've probably never heard of it, and my advice would be to just keep it that way. (laughs) But there have been millions of copies sold, and it shaped the narrative of singleness in a way that still lingers within evangelicalism. And embedded within that book is an intrinsic flaw. Consider even the title, Lady in Waiting. Waiting for what? That's the question, right? Here's what the subtitle says. Becoming God's best while waiting for Mr. Right. Mr. Right is what you are waiting for, and therein lies the flaw. If the what of your wait is marriage, the marriage has been exalted to an unhealthy pedestal of wholeness. You are not a lady in waiting. You are a lady, a complete lady with or without a husband. You are not a man in waiting. You are a man, a complete man with or without a wife. And if you wish to argue with that, if you think your life is just not complete until you find the special someone, well, then take it up with the incarnate Son of God. (laughs) Tell Jesus he isn't really complete in his humanity. Tell him he was somehow missing out on the fullness of human existence because he was single. That's heresy, my friends. So the myth that needs to be dispelled is that marriage equals completeness, that finding a spouse is the telos of your life. That's not true. You becoming you is the telos. You sanctified into the glorious person God made you to be is the completeness. So yes, the scripture does describe you as a lady in waiting, as a man in waiting, but, quote, waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, Titus 2. We are waiting for Jesus, who will complete his work in us. And that complete work is our completion. Finally, we will be the radiant glory we were made to be. So what happens when you change what we are waiting for into that is now everything is being used to get you there. And that could be marriage. That could be singleness. That could be divorce. That could be anything and everything that is sanctifying us and preparing us to get there. But the there is not marriage. The there is completeness in Jesus. And by the way, nowhere will that become more obvious than if you do end up getting married. It will take you about a honeymoon length's time to realize you complete me is a lie. Okay, second myth. You need sex to be fulfilled. Now, obviously, I'm speaking here to those for whom the unmarried life means a sexless life. I know that's not everyone's conviction. I understand that. 
And I also know, by the way, that even those who do hold that conviction have fallen short of that conviction, have failed in this area. And I know that means that the topic of sex may be a source of of so much shame. Um, I get that. But listen, grace abounds, my friends. Grace abounds. But let me speak. Let me speak to the myth that sex equals fulfillment. We live in an erotic, over-sexualized age. The sexual revolution has taught us, and we have believed, this fundamental lie. Sexual pleasure is an ultimate pleasure. In fact, our sexuality is now our very identity. Therefore, says the revolution, nothing should stand in our way of sexual fulfillment because that is the ultimate fulfillment. You cannot be fulfilled, satisfied, content, happy in life if you are denying yourself sexually. Well, again, Jesus dispels that myth. Our verse says that Jesus was tempted in every way, every way we are, yet was without sin. And it's the in every way that makes that verse so fascinating, isn't it? If it just said Jesus was tempted but was without sin, it would not be as scandalous. But it says Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. In every way? Does that include the arena of sexual desires? The Bible says in every way. And so, yes, though he never succumbed to temptation, Jesus was tempted by the empty allure of sexual immorality. He was fully human, including fully developed sexual organs. He went through puberty. He was tempted to indulge in moral thoughts and actions, but he said no, perfectly said no. Every single time he put temptation to death and was without sin. Question, was Jesus therefore unhappy? Was his an unfulfilled life? No, he was perfectly fulfilled because fulfillment is not sex. Fulfillment, according to Jesus, is to do the will of his Father. My bread, meaning my sustenance, my fulfillment, my satisfaction, is to do the will of the Father who sent me. And for Jesus, the will of his Father did not include sex. But Jesus found delight in obedience to the Father. Sex is not the highest joy. Obedience to God is. And so, yes, singleness calls you to the celibate life. But the plausibility of the celibate life must become a happy option for you. Now, it's not easy. Nobody is saying that, nor is marriage easy, by the way. If you think marriage must be amazing because you get to have sex, then just talk to anyone, and I literally mean anyone who is married. In fact, the sex itself comes with its own complications and difficulties. For example, there is no pain like the wounds inflicted by a lover. So the celibate life is not easy. The marital life is not easy. Whatever God's will is for you is not easy. But it is always good. So no, you do not need sex to live a fulfilled life. And may I indulge an important aside here that I have to make? This speaks to some friends that I know are listening in, and singleness is a uniquely difficult issue for you in particular. If we are going to deny that the celibate life is a good life, then we are going to further marginalize a demographic of Christians who desperately need our love and support. What will you say to your same-sex attracted brothers and sisters who are fighting for celibacy? 
these exiles of the sexual revolution, who have no home within a culture that tells them you must indulge your sexual desires. That is the only option for you. But they don't want to. They want to follow Jesus as Lord, Lord of their life, including their sexuality. There is no home for friends like that within a culture that tells them fulfillment will be found via sexual indulgence. Will they find a home in our churches? Only if heterosexual singles within those churches renounce the lie that the chaste life is an unfulfilled life. What an amazing opportunity for solidarity you have here. Stand with them. Fight for them. There are things you can say that I can't. You can say, sex is not God's will for me either. I have to deny my sexual temptations and feelings as well. But joy and fulfillment are still mine, and they can be yours as well. I'm with you. Let's carry the cross of celibacy together. A sexless life is a good life. You can say that. So myth number two, you need sex to be fulfilled. Okay, myth number three, you need a family to be loved. And by family, I mean you need your own family. You need the spouse, the 2.5 kids, the minivan, the perfectly groomed dog, all neatly contained within a white picket fence. So it's not that I think a spouse will complete me. It's not that I think sex will fulfill me. It's that I don't want to spend the rest of my life alone. I want a marriage and kids and future grandkids. I want family vacations and I want to put it all on Instagram. I'm tired of envying families on Instagram. I want the family that's envied on Instagram. In all seriousness, you want the solace, the comfort, the acceptance, ultimately the love that you believe only a family can provide. Well, again, Jesus dispels that myth, but he does so not by condemning the family, but by expanding the family. You don't need a spouse. You don't need sex. You do need a family, just not a nuclear family of your own creation. Do you remember when they came to Jesus and said, your mother and brothers are asking for you? Here was his response. And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This, Jesus says, is my family. Jesus had the audacity to take the term family of God literally, to actually regard his church as the actual household of God. In fact, so radical was his view of the household of God that he said he came to bring the sword that would divide the conventional family in order to form his family. There are three relationships that are bound by covenantal vows. Three relationships so significant that they are protected by vows. The first is marriage, of course. That's the obvious one we think of. The second is children. Now, I'm speaking as a Presbyterian here. We take vows and we baptize our children. While I wish every Christian parent would do that, I realize my Baptist friends aren't with me on that one. That's okay. But I think even Baptists have some sort of, I don't know, dedication, vow-taking ceremony thing that they do. So even those who don't practice children baptism, infant baptism, they, they still recognize that there's some sort of covenantal relationship with children. And so, yes, the family, marriage and parenting is a huge deal, obviously, and a source of covenantal love. And so my single friends say, I want that. 
I want that level of vow, secured acceptance, and love. Ah, but there's one more sphere of relationships where we take vows. Church membership. Do you know how significant that is? To covenantally bind yourself to a church family in the same way husbands and wives covenant together in marriage? Meaning this, you do have a family. You do have brothers and sisters. You do have mothers and fathers. You do have sons and daughters. You have children. My TCPC friends listening in, my four sons do not just belong to Abby and me. They belong to you. And I'm not kidding. When the waters of baptism were placed upon their head, you took vows to join us as assisting parents. God forbid if something were ever were to ever happen to um, Abby and I, my children will be fine. Why? Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. God forbid if something were to happen to me, my widowed wife will be fine. Why? Taste Creek Presbyterian Church. And that level of promise belongs to my unmarried friends as well. Now, has the church failed to make you a part of the family? Yes, big failure. And if you are married and listening in, may I suggest a focused hospitality toward the singles in your church? That's what Abby and I chose to do. Our, our, our church is a larger church. There's no way to fully open our lives to everyone, so we had to be strategic. And we made the decision to open our lives to singles in particular. And by that, I mean we finished our basement with a bedroom and a full bathroom so that they can move in with us because they are, after all, family, right? But a word to singles as well. I know the church has failed to love you. I know that. And we need to get better at that. May I encourage you to take the initiative to not be shy, to take your church up on their vows that they made? There is no excuse for you to be lonely. No excuse for a member of the household of God to be lonely. Ask to be included. You have that right by way of vows. Would you mind if I came over once a month, every other week, something like that, to join your family for dinner? Nothing special. Don't clean up. I want to experience your home, mess and all. But can I be included? Can I come over on Saturday and help with the mundane tasks? Can I help with your kids? Can I help disciple your kids? Would you bring your family over to my apartment and let me host you? Let me cook for you. Listen, I don't know one person, in my church at least, I don't know one person who would say no to you if you were that presumptuous. And I'm asking you to be. I'm saying insert yourself into their lives with a level of presumption that only family members have because you are family members. Anyway, I'm getting in the weeds of practicality here. Back to my point. My point is, you do have a family, the family of God. It was enough for Jesus. It has been enough for countless saints throughout history and even to this day who knew that by following Jesus and joining his family, they would lose their family. It has proven enough for them, and yes, it is enough for you. So the humanity of Jesus tells us these three things are now lies. You need a spouse to be complete. You need sex to be fulfilled. You need your own family to be loved. Now, having dispelled the myths, in our next episode, we will turn proactively to the gifts. And yes, Paul does describe the single life as a gift, not in the way you imagine a gift, but yes, a gift nonetheless. But I think that's enough for today. We'll get into that uh, next week on another episode of Every Square Inch. 